The Christian story of salvation is a story that, beha- that begins a long, long time ago. In fact, it begins when there was really only one witness, uh, God. Long ago, uh, Genesis chapter 1 tells us that God hovered over the waters of the deep. And at some point in the middle of all that hovering, God decided to make a world. And so as God got, as God got to it, he began to create whales that sing. God began to create birds that talk, dogs that lick, and skunks that <laughs> smell stink. <laughs> One of those two. And when God looked at it all, after he had made the world, he kicked back and he said, it's all good. It's all good. Except there was something missing on this planet with beautiful sandy beaches and incredible golden California sunsets, pink recently, but golden originally. Uh, It's as if an incredible artist had painted this incredible work of art on this blue-green planet out in the middle of nowhere in the universe with black all around and a nice spotlight to shine on it. You see from outer space a beautiful mix of blues and greens and tans, browns, yellows, white for the clouds, the polar caps. God had painted and built this incredibly beautiful world, but the artist had forgotten to sign his work. And so right away on the sixth day, God begins to work on his signature piece, something that was made in his own image so that there would be no doubt throughout the universe who made this planet, that the planet was made by God. He did something incredible. He made a human body out of earth mud. And then he had to stand it up and holding this body by the shoulders, God got close. See, we often miss that part. But remember, the part of the story when God is creating, it says God breathes into the nostrils of the man and he becomes a living being. God didn't just kind of distantly snap his fingers. When God created human beings, he got up face to face with us. And while we were standing there as lifeless mud, God holding our shoulders so that we could stand, God gets in close and the breath that he has, he takes a deep breath, he exhales, and as that breath goes into our nostrils, the capillaries begin to flow. The heart begins to beat and pretty soon the eyes open and they behold the creator. What did that look like? Well, you and I don't know. Because if we were to see that intense power of God, we would die in a nanosecond. But Adam and Eve, as, as living beings, they, they looked upon, you know, what was it? A, a huge vortex of energy, a big plasma ribbon, a, a fiery, I don't know, we all know. It's hard to describe. The Bible takes many words to describe it, but it was nothing less than the glory of God. And Adam and Eve knew who had made them. Adam and Eve knew who came knocking in their backyard when they wanted to go for a walk in the garden. Adam and Eve knew that the joy that they felt and experienced every single day was the joy that God created on this planet. In fact, in no other time in history was earth so filled with the joy and beauty of the Lord And they loved him. They were his signature. 
These human beings, while being made from the stuff of the rest of creation, were also quite amusing for God to look at as they began to fumble with what to do with long fingernails and as Eve attempts to cut Adam's hair for the first time, wondering how without the invention of scissors she was going to do it. And God begins to laugh. And of course, God, God laughs at Adam and Eve as they try to fumble around their new world and exploring all the things that God had created. He walks with them. He talks with them. And then there was the love. Adam and Eve's love for each other as, as they cooked for each other, as they cleaned each other, as they carried each other, as they cried for each other, as they spent their nights together. There was the love that even as animals looked on, they would have a point of curiosity. But what Adam and Eve were reflecting was the love of the creator for earth, for the creatures of earth, and especially for God's signature upon the earth. You and me and every human being. They loved him. They were his signature. And for a moment, everything was perfect. But in order for a being to truly be made in God's image, God had to take the ultimate risk if it was to be real, if it was to be true, if it was to be genuine. To make a being truly in his own image, God had to make that being free. Free to choose the good and free to choose the bad if he or she so wanted. So on earth, there were placed two trees. And one tree we know from the book of Genesis, was called the tree of life. I often like to think of it as the tree of God. When the humans ate of this tree, they would literally be digesting the life of God into their bodies, and their bodies would never die because they had the eternal life of God flowing through it, being broken down and spread out from the head to the feet. There was another tree in the garden. This is the tree I like to call the tree of death. The Bible calls it the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. The human nature that the tree of life produced was something incredible. Think about it. The tree of life produced a human nature that was perfect, that was otherly, that was considerate, that was compassionate. It was a type of human nature where 10 billion human beings could inhabit this planet and there would never be any war, there would never be any disease, there would never be any divorce, no murder, no lying, no violence, no clothes, unless you wanted them. It would be a world where 10 billion people could enjoy God with no shame and no regrets. But God had to offer the other choice if those human beings were truly going to be made in his image. The tree of death, called in Genesis, the knowledge of good and evil, offered another type of human nature. And it was this type of human nature that promoted the self-made man, that self-promotion and self-survival would be the chief end of humanity. It was a choice that had already been taken, by a number of angels, and one of those angels, with permission, had entered the garden to offer Eve that choice. God had already warned the man and the woman not to take that choice, that the choice would produce death. But God was fair. He allowed Adam and Eve to hear the other side of the argument. And so as the serpent came in, 
he said things like, Oh, you won't die? Oh, you, you, God knows that when you go down this road and you take this tree, you're going to be just like him. God has been holding out on you. Eat. This is the path to wisdom and knowledge and success. And Eve begins to deliberate among herself, perhaps Adam too being right there. And pretty soon they began to say, you know, it does look pretty good. And yeah, a little bit of wisdom never hurt anybody. Come on. And as their teeth began to sink into whatever the produce of that tree was, and the enzymes of their mouth began to break down the substance, already the change was taking place. Their human nature, which had known only life and joy and peace and perfection, was now experiencing a first byproduct of death. And that was shame. Shame was entering in. And then fear. And pretty soon they'd be blaming each other in front of God. He did it. She did it. Her fault. His fault. The serpent's fault. What was happening to the signature? God was devastated. The two human beings that he had loved and created had made their free choice will against him. They chose the devil's wisdom over God's warnings. God still loved them, but it was apparent in a matter of time that the feeling was no longer mutual. They quickly got busy learning how to make things and how to grow things, how to trade things, how to build things. And it was not long before most human beings had forgotten God altogether or the origins of where they had come from. Those who still believed in God began to draw pictures of him, but these pictures strangely strangely resembled their own image rather than the image of God. Soon these people divided, conquered, began to kill each other, and God was shouting from the sidelines everything from floods to famines and manna, messengers. But there was a barrier as to why God had to stand on the sidelines. And the barrier is something you and I possess today. While many of you may think, I know where he's going, it's that sin barrier. Actually, it's one a little more simple than that. It's what we were made of, flesh and blood. Flesh and blood, one millimeter of God's presence would be enough to melt our bones to ash and our skin to dust. And so God begins to send messengers. God begins to try to speak in dreams God begins to do all of these things that won't kill us, but that will try to give us life. By the time human beings had realized what had happened, the damage had already been done. It was a world of every man and every woman for himself. And we knew it. It was not a safe world anymore. And we knew it. Slavery, domination, despair, shame, theft, rape, Murder and fear were now some of the hallmarks of human life on earth. A global flood couldn't even fix the problem because the eight people saved were enough to reinfect the host. The signature had been severely smeared. Like a rose that's disconnected from its stem. It begins to bloom for a while. God had told Adam and Eve, when you go down this road, when you eat of this fruit 
and you inherit this nature, you'll die. But for a while, Adam and Eve seemed to be doing anything but dying. In fact, they were reproducing life as they were having children and children and children and they lived to be nearly a thousand years old and they began to wonder, maybe the serpent was right. Until just a few years shy of his thousandth birthday, we find Adam breathing his last. He wasn't the first to die. His son Abel was the first to die, but Abel was murdered by his brother Cain. Adam died because he was disconnected from the power source of life, just as the rose had been from the stem. In Genesis 3.15, God says to the devil, I am going to put enmity between you and the woman and between your offspring and hers. God predicts one of the very earliest scriptures of Jesus Christ as the Savior of the world is Genesis 3.15. It's called the Proto-Evangelium. Genesis 3.15 says very clearly that Jesus will crush the head of the devil and begin to destroy everything that happened in Genesis 3. All of that stuff, the temptation, the fruit, the fruit of the tree and all that where we go, oh, we were so close to being perfect. And God says Jesus will crush the head of all the devil's work. But the devil will bruise the heel of Jesus. That is symbolic of the crucifixion. Jesus would get bruised the devil would get crushed. You're beginning to see the picture forming of Jesus as Savior. Sometimes we think of Jesus all too often as a personal Savior, and he is. But for a moment, let's think of Jesus as global Savior, and then we'll hone it in to the personal side of it. By the end of Genesis chapter 3, we see Adam and Eve being driven out of the garden that they had lived in. And an angel stationed there, warning them not to come back. And I think that this is one of the most crucial points of Scripture right here. Why did God kick Adam and Eve out of the garden? Is he, was he just so mean and so mad that they bit that apple? And so, so prone to anger and silliness? Like so often we see in either television or media or movies? No. The greatest act of mercy is about to unfold as God commands Adam and Eve to leave the paradise that they had dwelt in. Point number one, God's first act of mercy was our death. If you look, God gets together and he says, we cannot have Adam and Eve stay here. Why? Because the tree of life is still in the garden. Forget about the fact that they already had the tree of, of the knowledge of good and evil and the tree of death. There's actually still the tree of life in there. And God knows this. And like a tactical engineer who's thinking about the salvation of the planet, he says, if these human beings feast on this, then they will forever remain this way. They'll forever remain in things like shame and embarrassment and imperfection. I don't know about you, but... I don't want to live in this body forever, especially mine, to be honest with you. You know, I mean, I don't, I don't, you know, I, if I, if God would say, hey, I got an offer for you. We can get you a new body. We can get you a whole new thing. We can clean up that nature. Give me it. Come on. I will take it. When I was in college, I had a Buick Skylark. How many of you have ever owned a Buick Skylark? You know where I'm going with this, don't you? 
I took that thing in a mechanic six times in one year. One time I took and the mechanic wasn't there. So I left it and I waited for him to come back. He came back and, he, and I said, where were you? He said, I was in Disney World all week. I said, oh, okay. Well, look at my car for me. He looks at my car for me and says, oh, you need a pickup coil. And you know, it's $1,500 worth of work. And I kicked the car and I said, I'm sick of giving you money to go to Disney World. <laughs> and I start kicking the car over and over and over again. The mechanic is kind of like going, whoa, what's going on here? I said, keep it. I don't want it. I'm going to go out and buy myself a new car. And I did. Do you feel that? I mean, it's as if we would say, God, you could fix this body over and over and over and over again, but I don't know if I want repair parts. God's first act of mercy is not to save this body. It's to allow it to run its course and go back into the earth from which it came. Because there's coming a day through Jesus where we'll be resurrected in a whole new body. So many people get it wrong. They think we live in heaven forever. That is not what the Bible teaches. The Bible teaches a wonderful future where there will be a new earth and human beings will be on the earth, but it won't be like us in these bodies. It'll be in perfect, incredible bodies. Bodies where God can put his hands out on our shoulders and we can look at him as we can look at each other today. We'll see God face to face and live. Bodies that are redeemed and restored, a nature that's redeemed and restored. That's what Jesus as Savior means, point number two. God's second act of mercy was his death. I'm going to read to you from Hebrews 9. It says, How much more then will the blood of Jesus Christ, who through the eternal Spirit of God offered himself unblemished to God, Cleanse our consciences from acts that lead to what? From acts that lead to death. So often when we talk about Jesus as Savior, and it's particularly like my friends who don't believe in Jesus or don't believe the Lord, and I love him, God bless him, all they'll always go to is Jesus is all about sin, right? He just hates my sin, da 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 And, and, and I, I just want to peel back and say, listen, there's a much bigger problem than sin here. While sin is definitely a problem, the effects of it and the whole system of it produces death. Jesus as Savior saves us from the horror and consequences of death. As the writer of Hebrews is saying, he cleanses our consciences from acts that lead to death so that we may serve the God of life. He cleanses our consciences from acts that lead to death so that we may serve the God of life. Jesus' death ransoms us from the power of death over us. Now remember, these bodies are going to die, but that's in the plan. Something comes next. Even after we die, we're still living. We're still conscious. We're not here. Jesus' death ransoms us from the power of death over us, from the fear of death over us. Because in Jesus, we have God's promise to be reconstructed, renewed, restored, recreated. Paul says, behold, if you are in Christ, you are a new creation, not a fixed up Buick Skylark. Amen? <laughs> Point number three. Revelations chapter 20, verse six 
shows us that God's third act of mercy was the second death. If you read in Revelation, you'll, you'll find this phrase, uh, the second death. You might think, second death? Uh, I thought that we were all appointed to die once and then be with the Lord. Well, let me explain a little bit. Uh, there, just as there's two births, right? Your physical birth, then your spiritual birth as you become born again. There's two deaths. There's a the physical death and spiritual death. When Revelations talks about the second death, he's talking about this. It's the removal of Satan from the garden. In the beginning, we, the, 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 case, the, the, the case needed to be heard. God had made his case and he allowed the, the devil to make his. The second death is when all of this has been said and done, God is literally going to, going to take Satan all his demons and all his offspring, and there's going to be a second spiritual separation so that when you and I are in our new bodies, living on our new earth, we don't have to worry about the devil. Amen? He's gone. It's the second death. It's over. How many of you woke up this morning and said, Devil, tempt me. I love it. Bring it on. More, more, more. Temptation is wonderful. No. No. Some of you nodded. No, no. It's not wonderful. <laughs> that was not my point. <laughs> I hate being tempted. I hate it. I hate going on a diet and being tempted, you know? I hate temptation. If you could tell me there's a new earth, a new body, and guess what? You won't be tempted. <laughs> Sign me up all the more. Amen? God's third act of mercy is the second death. The removal of all of that. And then finally... Uh, the scripture on that, Revelation 26, um, blessed and holy are those who share in the first resurrection, the second death has no power over them, and then really, uh, Revelation 20:14 says it even better too, God's fourth act of mercy was an end to death. And this is very, very important. Uh, one of the things that was interesting in, in, in my graduate studies was when we did a really fascinating study on, on Hinduism. And of course, Hinduism is a cycle of a lot of is life and death, you know? And hopefully, as you keep coming back, you keep advancing until, until finally you make it to nirvana, which is, which is a, a type of heaven, and, and you don't have to keep that cycle up anymore. I think one of the beauty of Christianity is this, especially in Revelation chapter 20, it's very clear. Death and everything that causes death, everything that surrounds death, you ever feel death in you sometimes? Sometimes I feel death in me. Especially when I have been so angry. I, I, I'll just be honest with you. I had a situation the other day in my car yelling at somebody. Rolled down my window. And uh, I'm not even that big of a man. What am I doing yelling at anybody, you know? <laughs> and I just wanted to give this man a piece of my mind, you know? And I just went off and off and off. And I, I'll be honest with you, I'm so glad nobody was there. <laughs> nobody here was there. <laughs> and and, and I, I just remember coming away from that, almost feeling death in me. Thinking to myself, now, if all six billion people on the planet acted the way I did at the same time, we'd kill each other. It's death. fourth point is God's Jesus's greatest victory and God's greatest act of mercy and gift to us death ends never to come back again 
Revelation chapter 20, verse 14. Then death and Hades were thrown into the lake of fire. The lake of fire is the second death. All those spiritual concepts that hold us in fear and bondage, separated. They're thrown away from us, never to return. God fixes a problem we create and creates a fix we can't undo. And it all centers on point number two. As Adam and Eve had that free will choice to choose that nature that has produced so many of the things we struggle with in our world today, Jesus as Savior gives us the free will choice to choose the fix that God has offered to us. It's not a paycheck. It's a free gift. And it's one for our choosing. Just as we had the free will to choose the tree of life and the tree of death, the knowledge of good and evil, to be made in God's image still, we still have that choice to choose Jesus as Savior or to try to find salvation in some created thing. Buy your heads with me. I'd like to make a very clear invitation. Hopefully I have outlined the problem. It's not just your problem. It's the world's problem. It's our problem. It's my problem. My need for salvation is just as equal as anybody else's in this room. And for those of you who are serving God, I hope this is a fresh inspiration to serve Him once again with all your heart if your heart had been waning. But for those of you who are seeking God, this message is going to be with you for a long time. I know that because I once was anything but a follower of God. I hated anything to do with God because it messed with my plans and my party. But I heard a message like this and it stuck with me for a long time because it did make sense. Like the video said, I recognized there was something. Something missing, even in my own heart. So I want to make an invitation for you this morning. That's something that's missing. Would you like to fill that with Jesus as Savior? Would you like to fill that with the Holy Spirit of God? I promise you, Jesus will be the best friend you ever had and you will have no regrets. But it is a choice. We're not born into it. One day, one moment, you decide to take it, all of it, and never look back. If that's you, would you please just look up at me right now and signify, that's what I'm doing. Amen, brother. Amen. 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 Jesus, for all these people who just looked up, I could see the truth of it in their eyes. There's something sincere happening today. God, I pray for the infilling of the Holy Spirit to come into their heart now. God, that in their own mind, thoughts, and spirit, they're not alone anymore that you would begin to fill them. And Lord Jesus, we believe in you for salvation, for healing, for baptizing, and we do declare that you are our King.
to finish our celebration this morning of Jesus as Savior, I'd like to invite the ushers to come forward, and they're going to uh, serve the communion elements as we take the body and blood of Jesus Christ together. Make no mistake about it. Point number two. The body was broken for us. The blood was shed for us. And on the night that Jesus was betrayed, he took the bread and he broke it and he gave it thanks. And he said, this is my body that was given up for you. Do this in remembrance of me. We as we take communion, we are connected to Christians over two millennia. And over bill- yeah, millions of Christians who will celebrate communion today in some part of the world. We're all connected under one Jesus. One Jesus as Savior. And I got a little ahead of myself, so I better slow down a bit as, as the trays are getting passed. When I was church a long time ago, I remember we were, it was Communion Sunday, and I remember thinking, oh, thank God it's Communion Sunday. I'm so hungry. <laughs> and, uh, and I remember as I got it, I was like, you know, it ain't much, but it's better than nothing. And I remember the pastor got up and said, how many of you want this to be more than a mid-morning snack for you? And I went, oh, my God. I'm so sorry, you know. <laughs> I mean, I, I I wasn't really following the Lord then, and, and but I remember I remember from that point on. I remember just thinking as I held these, you know, this is much more than a mid morning snack. This is something that connects me to Christianity for thousands of years. And I'm proud to be connected to it. Let's lift this up, Jesus. Thank you for your body that you freely chose to break for us. We eat this in remembrance of you. Amen. If you could hold the cup up. Lord Jesus, the cup of the blood of Christ is the new covenant. It is signed and sealed in blood. God, that we are a restored signature. That the signature of God that was once painted on this earth will be painted again. And your blood frees us and forgives us to be that signature. In Jesus' name, amen. Stand with me. Let's close with the song we learned this morning. My heart will sing.